All right, Psalm 90, we're going to read the whole thing. We're going to focus on 12 to 17. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's take a moment to meditate and pray. Oh, Father, what a word you've given us this morning through Psalm 90. Your word is so sufficient on its own. It does not need man to explain it or expand on it, but Lord, you have ordained that to take place. From the beginning, you sent forth your word through men to herald it, to make known it. And Lord, it is the way we have all come to know you through hearing of the gospel. And today we know that as we hear these words, these words are not just penned by man, but they're your words, Lord. They are your words about you your characters, your attributes, your excellencies. Lord, they are about us, our rebellion, our sin, our depravity. Lord, they are about life and death, death that comes through Adam and life that comes through Christ. They are about a means of salvation and they are about your glory and how your glory will extend to the ends of the earth Lord, and we will be your people in that place. You will be our God. We will dwell with you and we will see your face all because of your gracious, loving kindness towards us. 
We thank you, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears that we may receive your message for us through this passage, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the oldest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Uh, It seems as we unpack some of his writings, it would be a psalm that was written closer to the end of his life. They are looking at heading into the promised land. The Israelites have been banned from going in. Moses himself has seen the land but will not enter into it because of their sinfulness. And he there gets to this place where he is pondering the realities of God, his wrath on mankind, and death that will bring them to the end. And we see so clearly that humankind, the humankind, the, the human nature or the human race is fleeting and fragile and has an expiry date set. 70 or by reason of strength, 80 or by reason of modern medicine, I guess, maybe 90 or 100. Moses makes it very clear in his song or his prayer here that he wants the reader or the singer to contemplate the comparison between God and us. That God was there before the mountains were created, before ever he had formed the earth. He was there and he was self-sufficient and totally content. And he wants us to compare that to man who at the voice of God will return to dust. And he wants us to think long about these deep truths, to ponder them in our hearts that we may come to the reality of surrender to God and dependence as we realize that we are finite and he is infinite, that he is self-sufficient and we are dependent. We are to consider this. We are to ponder these realities. That God will always be there. That in the next thousand years, a thousand years time, if he allows the world to go on for that long, God will see that as yesterday and we will be long forgotten. Our end comes under his wrath. Wrath on our sinfulness. Our rebellion means that we are worthy of death. These are the truths that we looked at last week, the truths that we must ponder on a regular basis. It is good for us not to be puffed up in pride, but to remember daily our need for a saviour. And in verse 12, 11, sorry, he says, who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. He, he tells us here, Moses, in his song, who is considering this? Who is pondering your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Last week I said, without a deep understanding of God's wrath, his grace is meaningless to us. Without an understanding of what God poured out on Christ, you won't understand grace. That when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if there is any possible way of you taking this cup from me, please do that, but not what my will, but yours. He was speaking of the cup of God's wrath that he would drink in full. And if we don't comprehend the extent of God's wrath, if we don't comprehend the extent of his anger towards sin, we will always have a shallow view of grace. So the problem is deep. And mankind's problem is not with Satan 
or another spiritual world means or another spiritual idea or with other people. Our problem with it is with a holy God, a holy God who formed us, a holy God who fashioned us. And the Christian is the one who ponders these things in fear of him. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The Christian does, we said last week. The Christian has weighed up in their heart. What does it mean for God to be angry at me? What does it mean for me to sit under the wrath and anger of God? The Christian has weighed up. What is the means of my salvation? How do I get away? Can I do good deeds? No, I can't do good deeds. My good deeds are insufficient. I need a savior, the Christian says. A savior who is holy. A savior who has fulfilled the law. A savior who is unlike me. And the Christian lingers on these things and comes to the place where they say, only Christ. Only Christ is sufficient to wear God's anger and wrath for me. Only Christ is sufficient to die for me. It is in our regeneration that we come to this conclusion. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and awakens our dead soul in order for us to understand God's wrath, in order for us to understand God's grace, in order for us to fear Him. And fear is an interesting topic and one that needs much explanation and we'll touch briefly on it. But I want us to think about these realities a bit more as we unpack these next few verses because we need to apply this to our life. It doesn't help us to just sit in condemnation or sit under the wrath and anger of God. There's an answer. There's an application to be had. There's a way we should live it it out. And I think it's helpful to consider Jesus' parable. His parable when he says, consider the cost. And he gives two analogies. I'm only going to look at one. He says, there was a king going out to war. And as he went out to war, he would consider whether he could take on the coming army that had 20,000 men with his 10,000 men. And before they would meet on the battlefield, he would wonder and ponder and go, how skilled are my men? How equipped are they for battle? Do we have enough strength to outweigh this 20,000 men? And of course, that king would come to the conclusion that they could not win. And he would go and find peace with that king. Jesus tells this parable in the context of God's coming kingdom. If we start the book of Mark all over again, which we preached through last year, we would see that Jesus went and preached the, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, he would say. The kingdom of God is coming or the kingdom of God is here. He would say these things and he's preaching this in the context of knowing that God's kingdom is coming and he wants the church or the the, the people of this world to ponder the reality of this coming kingdom. Can we stand against the kingdom of God? What will we say to this king when he comes against us? Will we try and justify ourselves by good deeds? Will we say, I've got the strength to come against you, kingdom of God. I've got the strength to fight against you. Jesus tells this parable in order for us to count the cost. Men of dust, people of dust, are you able to fight against a holy God? Are you able to stand in his presence and justify your existence? 
And the answer is no. The answer is no. The answer is to have fear, to have wisdom, as this passage goes on to say, that we would have wisdom in our heart. Wisdom says surrender. Wisdom says bow your knee and worship that king. Wisdom says repent. So verse 12 we pick up. As Moses helps us respond to this deep reality of a coming kingdom, this deep reality of a God who is holy and we who are not, how do we apply? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Our time is short. We are not certain of even the 70 or 80 years. We may be called to dust earlier than that. Our life may end. So teach us then. Teach us, Lord, how we are to number our days. How am I to live? What should I do? Well, if the kingdom is coming and God's kingdom is coming to this earth and he is going to uh, overthrow the principalities, the, the, overthrow mankind and their sinfulness, we must find out what wisdom is. Wisdom is to respond to this king. Or as Corinthians says, wisdom is Christ. Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God. So if we need wisdom in our heart to number our days, we need Christ. And if we go to Proverbs or Job or Psalms, we need to fear God because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? We've got a coming king coming. We've got this king coming with his armies, his heavenly armies. He's here to destroy the wicked and save his people from his wrath. What is the fear of the Lord in that place? The fear of the Lord is to put God in his rightful place. That is the most simple way we could probably put the fear of the Lord. It is, it is not enough, but it is a simple way of understanding. Put God in his rightful place as Lord. To say, God, you deserve the throne, not me. God, you deserve to judge, not me. God, you deserve to determine what righteousness is, not me. The right place for God is to be above all else in our life. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And to fear the Lord is to say, God, you are God. You are King. You are Lord. So when we, go, when we come to verse 12 and say, God, in, in my heart, give me wisdom. We are saying, in my heart, give me a genuine acknowledgement of fear. Because fear leads to surrender. Fear leads to a place where we say, God, I am not in control. You are. Fear leads to a place where we say, God, I am sorry. It leads to repentance. Fear of God leads to a place where we say, I need to obey all of your commands. I need to surrender to all of your standards, not just some of them. This is a prayer that we need to pray on a regular, place, a regular basis because our hearts wander as we sung just before. Our hearts are prone to wander and chase after other gods or other, or other idols or desires and place them above us. Or we don't number our days. We need wisdom in order to actually number our days and care about how we spend our time on this earth. Are we building our own kingdom? Do you think your kingdom will stand against the kingdom of God? 
As you number your days, as you look about your life and see what you're doing with your resources, your time, your energy, are you building a kingdom for yourself or are you contributing to the building of God's kingdom? Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom, Moses prays, so that we number our days and use them for your glory and build your kingdom, not ours. The person taught to number their days is one who has wisdom to trust in Christ. And the cry of their heart is verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. This is the cry of every Christian. Read the Psalms and see how many times you hear the line, O Lord, how long? I think it's somewhere around 600. It could be wrong. O Lord, how long? The Christian who has found wisdom, who knows how to number their days, has come to a place where they're done with this earth and they want the new heaven and earth. They want the kingdom of God. There's things that they delight in in this world and and so we should. Family is good. Church is good. Holidays are great. Food is to be enjoyed. But let our chief desire and our ultimate end be that we want heaven to be here. We want God to be here. We want to have that cry of Revelation 22, the church and the bride say, come. We want to have that cry in our hearts. We want to enjoy the times we have. We want to number our days, but say, God, if you want to come, come now. Because this is okay, but heaven is better. The new heavens and the new earth is better. So we cry in the song, oh Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have pity on us, Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. What a prayer to pray every morning. Satisfy us this morning. What was the thought you had when you woke up this morning? What lingered in your mind? What tiredness was there? What irritation may have been there? As I wake, the the to-do list gets longer. And I instantly think of starting to pack up at 6 a.m. But rather I know that a more fruitful time would be spent in prayer. Prayer in the word and saying, Lord, how long minister to my heart. And it, it honestly would take me every morning half an hour to even be motivated to pick up my Bible. Half an hour of pleading with God, satisfy me with your love. Satisfy me. How quickly we turn to other things to satisfy the craving heart. But wisdom in our heart, that prayer in verse 12, wisdom in our heart is to say, God, only you will satisfy. Each morning, if we are asking God for wisdom, he is saying, if you need wisdom, if you want wisdom, the wisdom is seek first me, desire me above all else. We can fill ourselves with other desires, but they will satisfy for only a moment. They are limited. They are temporary. Only his love is consistent, abiding, dependable, and will bring about satisfaction that will last. And this is a daily war we must fight. We are at war every single day to fight for satisfaction in the Lord. We will chase after other things. We'll linger on places where we're prone to wonder, wander. And of course we can pray, God, each day, each day I need wisdom. Each day I need a reminder 
Each day I need satisfying in my heart with your steadfast love. Church, can I encourage you with Jacob's wrestling with God in Genesis? As Jacob wrestles with God and does not let go until he says, bless me. An incredible passage of what it means to spiritually wrestle with God. Would we be like Jacob who say, Every morning, I'm going to wrestle with God until he has blessed me, until he has satisfied me, until he has made me happy in him, which is what blessed means, to be happy in God, to be satisfied in God. Will we wrestle every morning, pleading with God to satisfy us and meeting, and he meets us there. He does meet us there. It's hard spiritual work. This is genuinely hard spiritual work. It's not easy work. And for someone who, isn't, uh, uh, who, who struggles to sit still or someone who struggles to, to find time to want to read or pray, this, this becomes a, a, a taxing job at times. But when we linger in it, when we strive to, to, to be in this place of studying the word and prayer, he does meet us. And maybe we need to make sure we've got accountability on that until we get into a rhythm. But I'll always say, always say to you, are you reading and praying? It seems so simple, but it is how we meet with God in this lifetime. One day we'll see him face to face. But for now, we have his word and prayer and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us and the church that surrounds us, championing us on to fight the war for satisfaction in our soul. And it will be only one in the secret place with God. It will only be one in the secret place with God. In order that we may rejoice and be glad all our days, it says. If we are to rejoice and be glad all our days, it is the continual presence of God in our life. It's the continual grind of daily life while pressing into Jesus and being surrounded by loving brothers and sisters that we will be able to rejoice and be glad even in the midst of suffering as this passage turns to in a moment. How else will you find joy without God? How else will you find joy? If we go back to all of that is said before in Psalm 90, the God who created the mountaintops, who formed the earth and the world, who existed before all that, who, how else will you find joy? How else will you find satisfaction? Everything else will let you down. Everything else has an expiry date. Everything. Just take a moment to think of the things you enjoy in this life. If you enjoy them outside of God, they will fail you when they disappear. God is forever. And as the writer of Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Do we believe that? Do we just put those on coffee cups and t-shirts? Or do we believe a passage that says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Sometimes we skip over passages like that too quickly because there is so much depth in that. And that's an extreme, absolute statement that says God is enough. Nothing else is going to satisfy just God. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. They're absolutes. 
Would they sink deep into our heart and say, I have a need for the word. I have a need for fellowship. I have a need for prayer. As that is our only means to connect with God in this life. Yet we live in a time of suffering. We live in a time where our satisfaction is not always going to be at its highest. But we must endure and overcome. Because Jesus faced suffering in his life with the joy set before him. Hebrews tells us that he went to the cross with joy set before him. The reason Jesus could have joy in, order to, in his suffering was because he knew what would happen through his suffering. If we know what's going to happen through our suffering, we know that we can have joy in the midst of it. So Jesus goes to the cross, suffers the horrendous pain of crucifixion, plus the horrendous separation from God the Father through the, through the wrath poured out on him. And he has joy in the midst of it because he knows it is going to claim for him his bride. The same is true for us. We can have joy in the midst of suffering, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore in the midst of suffering because we know we know that there is something greater coming. In other words, the suffering is not meaningless. The suffering is not pointless. There is a plan and purpose behind every grief that we experience, every sickness that we go through, and every death that is had in our life. Moses says in the song in verse 15, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and many days as we have seen evil. We will be glad. We will be glad for many more days, infinitely more days than you suffer here on this life. There is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that your life would not be full of suffering. For many Christians in the world today, every single day is suffering. Will we still endure if that were the case? If our whole life, our family was sick, we were just seeing death after death, if we were persecuted, if we were beat down, if every aspect of our life just felt like a grind, would we still walk with Jesus, knowing that we will have infinitely more days of joy with him forever? That is how Jesus had joy set before him, because he knew he was going to claim his bride. In the midst of his suffering, he saw the church that he would claim. He saw the glory of the Father and he could face death. We can face our suffering knowing that we have infinitely more days of gladness, infinitely more days without evil in heaven. Corinthians tells us, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that we have, as we look to the things that are, as we not, don't look to the things that are seen, but look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transcendent, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is a great comforting passage for us who are in suffering for this light and momentary momentary it's going to pass but the guarantee is not this life the guarantee is the next whatever comes our way whether it's persecution whether it's grief 
whether it's sickness, whether it's evil. Many of us are going to face horrendous sickness in our life. Many of us will. Many of us are going to experience death around us like we haven't experienced yet. What we need to remember in the midst of that, what we need to prepare for now is that God is doing something through it. It's not meaningless. It's purposeful. We can have joy knowing that our day, knowing that our day will come when we will be glad forevermore. Knowing that our day will come when evil will not dwell in our midst. In verse 16, let your servant be shown. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. It helps when we see God working in our midst as well. It helps when we see that in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, the small things that God is doing. So would we not just pray our prayers and forget about God answering, but would we see God as a God who answers prayers, even the most smallest of prayers? This week, I've been blown away at how God can answer a prayer in a moment. Prayers of just praying for someone and seeing their heart changed. Prayers of wanting to go into a hard conversation, thinking it's going to be tough, and God just lavishes his grace and love all over it, and people have their hearts softened, and sin is expelled from them, and grace is covering them. Would we meditate on the answers to prayers? Not the ones that aren't answered, but the ones that have been. And would we see his work? His work is all around us. This church is evidence of his work. This church is a blessing to me and it's a blessing to you guys are a blessing to one another as we look at how God is forming us and working in our lives. Would we in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, sit there in his presence and acknowledge that he is still working, even if it's the tiniest things, the smallest of all things, because we know that our days will be glad and evil will not last. The psalm ends in verse 17. Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's like a battle cry, a prayer of, of, of a final cry to God saying, God, be with us. God established the work of our hands in prayer, in the study of the word, in evangelism, in, a, in discipleship. Lord, if our work is for your kingdom, establish our work. Build your kingdom in this place. Would God build his kingdom in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of life and death, in the midst of uh, uh, good times and bad times? Would we see our work, our labors prosper as we expand and push through the suffering of this broken world, the suffering of this hurting world in order to establish not our own kingdom, but God's kingdom. What an incredible psalm for us to meditate on regularly as we think about God and his wrath, yet as we then move past that and go to his grace, this wonderful grace of God, this wonderful grace of God that he just lavishes on his people and says, you're not only going to be a part of my church, you're going to contribute to the building of her. You're going to contribute to the building of the church. It's going to be hard. 
but hard times produce character and they produce good fruit in us. If our church just came easy to us, if relationships just came easy to us, we'd be the most self-righteous people around. We want the hard days. We want the hard conversations. We want the grief and the pain and the suffering because it all contributes to our sanctification, knowing that our joy is in the Lord and our home is with him. Let me pray. Father, I give you great praise for you are a good God. You're a gracious God. You are so loving and kind. Lord, your wrath is deserved. Your, your punishment of death is deserved. But Lord, you pardon us through Christ. Christ, you, you put our sins upon him. You poured out your wrath upon him. Lord, we are forgiven because he suffered and he suffered with joy, knowing that you would be glorified and your church would be established. And Father, would we have Christ set before us would we suffer with joy, knowing that our fullness of joy is in you? Our pleasures forevermore are with you. Lord, would we be prepared for the light and momentary affliction that will come? Although in the time it will not feel light and momentary. But Lord, would we remember that they are, knowing that, Lord, our home is with you forever and ever with you. Lord, we look forward to seeing your face. Father, please come. Send Jesus. Let him come, that we may be with you and see you face to face, that this creation of yours would be restored new. Oh, what a blessing. What What a longing, Father. We love you, Lord. We give you praise. Give us safety today as we pack up, safety on the roads. And Lord, we look forward to establishing your kingdom in Hamo South and Newcastle as we Do your work, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.